Hello, I'm Jameis. And I'm Tessa. Welcome to our podcast that celebrates wordiness and nerdiness and sometimes plain absurdiness. Please join us for today's episode of Your Your New New Favorite Favorite Word. Welcome to episode four. Thanks to those who have listened, subscribed, and given feedback on our previous episodes. Listener Jenny says, we subscribed, and now this is part of our Monday morning school together. We're so glad to hear that, Jenny. We hope that our podcast will continue to support you and your family in your love of words and perhaps inspire you to become even more lexically frolicsome. Listener Anne tells us that the word catawumpus reminds her of her grandmother, who used it frequently. It is included in a list Anne made of fun and interesting phrases she remembers from her grandmother's speech. What a fabulous treasure of family history. Can you imagine having a list like that from one of your distant ancestors? I hope this inspires some of you as it does us to recall and write down some of the words and phrases our grandparents, parents, and other relatives say or used to say and pass them on to our own children and grandchildren. Thanks so much for sharing, Anne. I'm really excited for the show we've got today. Tessa and I prepare our choices in secret, so I'm as in the dark as the rest of you regarding Tessa's word. So, into the suspense, Tessa. What have you got for us? Well, contrary to my usual tradition, I'm going to start right away with telling you my new favorite word. I know you're all (laughs) in shock. Gasp. (laughs) But the word for this week is splenetic. S-P-L-E-N-E-T-I-C. Splenetic. Splenetic. Yeah. Have you heard that word before? I've never heard that word before. Okay. Well, it's time to tell you what it means. Um, The Oxford English Dictionary defines splenetic as having an irritably morose or peevish disposition or temperament, given or liable to fits of angry impatience or irritability. Like spleen? Yes. So the literal meaning of splenetic is of or relating to the spleen. So what's a spleen got to do with it? You know? Good question. Is that... Do you ever think about your spleen? I'm just curious. Not usually. It doesn't doesn't come up often. Yeah. So I do have one memory of when I was in Russia overhearing a conversation there was a woman giving advice to other people about what to do when your spleen hurts. I was pretty impressed yeah. that they could be that specific about where the pain was coming from in their abdomen. And unfortunately, I don't remember what the advice was. <laughs> so if my spleen ever hurts, I'm not sure what I'll do. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I was curious, what's the connection with the spleen and irritability? Um, and so I did some research And the American Heritage Dictionary revealed that in times past, the spleen was considered to be an organ that was conceived as the seat of emotions or passions. And that seems pretty strange until you realize that we do the same thing today with the heart, Mm, right? We think of the heart as being where our emotions are. We know it's not literal, right? But we have this idea that that's where emotions are seated. And some more um, digging showed that pretty much all of our internal organs have at one time or another in some culture or language been associated with different emotions. Fascinating. Yeah. So when I was doing research 
about that and doing a Google search, I found the most amazing resource. This was a dissertation written in 1921 by someone named Hans Karath. And this guy is my kindred spirit for sure. <laughs> he wrote his dissertation on the semantic sources of the words for the emotions in Sanskrit, Greek, Latin, and the Germanic languages. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so there was one part of his dissertation that was particularly interesting to me where he talked about um, emotions being directly tied to bodily organs. He explained this in a way that makes a lot of sense. He says, when you are feeling some kind of emotion and you want to describe it to someone else, we often use words associated with what's going on in our body. Strong emotions cause changes in our heart rate and our breathing. Mm. We might have particular feeling in our chest or our abdomen. Yeah, totally. So he says it makes sense that um, when describing these things, we would describe the sensations And through time, the way words change, these would be reflected in the language itself. And he said that this development usually takes place in three stages. So at first, the word denotes the organ itself. So, for example, the spleen. And then you might talk about the organ itself or its secretion. So we'll talk a little bit later about something related to that, um, that is thought to be affected in the emotions of anger, resentment, bitterness, and the like. And then eventually the word will be connected to the emotions themselves. So saying, I feel spleen, right? Mm. Or I feel splenetic um, would change that meaning. So it's really interesting. And, And this does seem a little weird. We're talking about internal organs here, but there are a lot of examples of this actually that I found. Another name for internal organs, um, the bowels. So describing our intestines, Right, so um, Greek poets, Adam Online tells us, regarded the bowels as the seat of the more violent passions, such as anger and love. But in contrast, the Hebrews saw um, the bowels as the seat of tender affections, especially kindness, benevolence, and compassion. And there's a word in Greek, um, I'm not going to pronounce it correctly, but S P L A N K H N O N. Do need to brush up on my Greek a little bit, <laughs> um, but it's a word that meant internal organs, and it was used in um, the Bible to talk about. So, for example, I'll give you an example from Jeremiah four nineteen. The King James Version says, "My bowels, my bowels, I am pained at my very heart." Hmm. And Colossians in the New Testament. Chapter 3, verse 12. Put on, therefore, thy bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. And these are words that in more recent translations have been rendered as heart or soul. But the Hebrews called it the bowels. That's where they felt this emotion. They perceived this emotion as being generated. Huh. Yeah. So another word, viscera. This is a word we don't often use, but it also means the intestines. If you're taking an anatomy class, you might um, use that word a little more often, but it means the soft internal organs of the body or the intestines, and by extrapolation, affecting inward feelings. So visceral, right? I had a visceral reaction to something. Cool. So another word like that is gut, okay? A gut reaction, right? We talk about a gut instinct, a gut feeling. These are, we're talking about our guts, right? Our intestines. We don't think about that usually when we use those words. 
So talking about guts, right, can be an emotional or visceral response to something or courage or fortitude. He had enough guts to do this scary thing, right? Um, The gallbladder, I don't know. That's not one I would have thought of immediately. (laughs) But to say someone has a lot of gall, right? They have assurance or impudence or something is very galling, right? Bitterness, asperity, right? Something that, that makes us feel bitter. And this is because um, it used to be supposed that these emotions had their seat in the gallbladder, hmm. right? And, uh, and then one that's more familiar to us, the heart, right? We often think of emotions as being related to the heart. But the actual root, the Proto-Indo-European reconstructed root that heart comes from, K-E-R-D, the word heart comes directly from that, but also cardiac and core, um, which makes sense. But then emotion words like cordial, mm. okay, I'm feeling cordial, um, or accord or discord, like a connection of hearts or a disconnection, and courage, right? That comes directly from the same root as heart. And then these are really interesting to me credence, credible, and creed, belief. Oh, fascinating. As being seated in the heart. Yeah, that's really cool. And then the most interesting one, quarry. So you're on a hunt for something. What is hunted is your quarry. It's what you desire That's that comes from the heart. Cool. And then um, the lowly liver, right? That's another one we don't think of very often. But uh, Shakespeare was the first to write this, at least. It might have been used in colloquial speech before that. In the 1600s, he wrote... Um, about being lily-livered, mm-hmm. right? You might have heard that yeah. in Looney Tunes or old <laughs> westerns or something. Um, so the liver is something that should be full of blood and bright red. But if it's lily-colored, white, you're bloodless, right? You're cowardly. You don't have that courage that you need. So to be lily-livered. I love learning that that <laughs> came from Shakespeare originally. Yeah. And so this is just really fascinating to me. Um, There's also, there's more recently, much more recently, in 2013, there was a Finnish scientific study on body slash emotion mapping. So they presented the participants with um, different stimuli geared toward generating emotions. And then they gave them outlines of the human body and they were supposed to paint on there showing Um, an increase of sensation in what parts of the body and a decrease in sensation in other parts of the body based on that emotion. And they had over 700 participants from different nationalities and cultures, and they they got a pretty um, consistent result from that. And um, I'm going to put that link in the show notes. There's I'll put a link to the scientific version of that study and also an NPR version that's a little more accessible. And both of them show the images that resulted from that kind of the, the average results from those participants. It's really fascinating. What a cool experiment. I love that. Yeah. But just that idea that emotions and body parts are connected, but that also we reflect that in our language. That is very, very fascinating to me. Yeah. I love it. So thanks for letting me share that word with yeah, you. Yeah. Thank you. That was really fascinating. All right. My turn. Yes. All right, so this week's linguistic journey began for me when I thought about the word light. What's cool about this word is that it's actually at least two separate words. 
light as in not dark and light as in not heavy. Interesting, yeah. Right? The crazy thing about that is that, is that these two, are, these words are two distinct, dissimilar ideas that just happen to go by the same English name. <laughs> light as in not dark comes from an old English word lecht and light as in not heavy comes from a different old English word leocht. And it reminds me, when I was in middle school, I went by the name Jamie. And there were two or three other kids in my class who also went by the name Jamie, and the ambiguity drove me nuts. <laughs> but even though we all had the same name, we were not the same person. Right? <laughs> I mean, that'd be silly. Ideas are the same way. Right? They can have the same name, but still have a distinct semantic identity. So my word this week is actually this entire class of words called homonyms. The word homonym itself comes from Greek and means literally same name. There's not total agreement on its semantic boundaries. Some people might say a word is a homonym and others will disagree. But in general, a homonym is a word that is either pronounced or spelled the same as another word, and possibly both. Now, as I dug into this, I discovered that homonym is itself this crazy umbrella term for a bunch of more specific classes of words. <laughs> for example, uh, some words might be spelled the same but pronounced differently, like the bow of a ship versus a bow and arrow. Right? Both are spelled mm -hmm. B-O-W. Yes. Or lead, the element, versus lead, to guide. Mm -hmm. It's spelled L-E-A-D. These homonyms are called homographic heteronyms, <laughs> <laughs> which means literally same writing, different name. Some places might also call them heterophones, meaning... Mm different sound. Then you've got words that might be spelled differently, but pronounced the same. Examples here are two, T-W-O, T-O-O, and T-O, all being pronounced two, or there, T-H-E-R-E, T-H-E-I-R, and T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E, right, total classic. Um, these are called homophonic heterographs. Same sound, different writing. And then words like light, like we talked about at the beginning, these that are spelled and pronounced the same but have distinct meanings are homographic homophones. Same writing, same sound, sometimes called true homonyms. Other examples are bark, like a dog or like a tree, mm -hmm. and kind, like a kind of person or a kind person. <laughs> um, spelled the same but very different meaning. But it gets even more crazy because some words have different meaning depending on whether or not they're capitalized. <laughs> Examples are march, the month, hmm. versus march, to walk in step. Um, and sometimes the pronunciation actually changes too, like Polish hmm. of Poland or Polish to make shiny. And both are you know, spelled the same, it's just one's capitalized and one's not. I mean, that nuts. Yes. Um, Try learning English, right? I know, right? <laughs> this is what makes it so fun. <laughs> this class of homonyms is called a capitonym. Oh, <laughs> I have not heard that term before. <laughs> Isn't that a cool word? Yes. But there's a bunch of examples like cancer, the astrological sign versus the disease, mm. or Catholic, the church versus the adjective that means universal, or Lent, mm. like that period between Ash Wednesday and Easter versus the past tense of to lend. <laughs> One's capitalized, one's not. Very different meanings. And then there's this huge controversial gray area of words 
that are both spelled and pronounced the same and whose meanings are related or very similar. For example, mouth. Uh, it might refer to this thing on the front of my face that I'm spewing words with right now, or it could mean like the entrance to a cave or where a river empties into another body of water. I mean, you can see how the meanings are similar, right? Mm-hmm. How they're all related, but they're still distinct things. My mouth is not a river mouth. They're <laughs> different ideas. Um, other examples are a newspaper might refer to a company that publishes the news or to the artifact that the company publishes. Wood comes from trees, but it can also mean an area with lots of trees. Mm. Um, this is called polysemy. Another cool word. I have heard that word. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wikipedia page is fascinating. I'll make sure it gets in the liner notes. Uh, it goes into lots of other semantic classes uh, like hyponymy and metonymy and metaphor. Mm. And I'm not going to go into those, but <laughs> fascinating reading. It's, this rabbit hole goes deep, I'll just tell you. But one of my favorite things was if you consider the words bow, B-O-W, and bow, B-O-W or B-O-U-G-H, you know, same sound, same spelling in some cases, different spelling in other cases, different meanings all around. You can even capitalize it, bow, and then it identifies this area in East London. Like there's a, a region of East London called bow. So that sound, bow, is simultaneously homograph, homophone, heteronym, heterograph, <laughs> capitonym, and polysine. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> So, okay, my last thing, and I'm going to borrow from your playbook, Tessa, since you didn't do it this time, I'm going to say my actual favorite word <laughs> this is, great. is heterography. Oh, I love it. This word appropriately has multiple meanings. <laughs> one refers to a language with a written form that does not have a one-to-one correspondence with its spoken form. Can you think of a language that fits that description? Chinese. Yeah, Chinese, sure. Um, although Chinese is probably closer to a homography um, because the individual characters have a consistent pronunciation Hmm. right but English (laughs) is notoriously heterographic (laughs) English and French and some others Um, Korean is actually an example a very good example of homography the opposite where it's written and spoken forms agree very well but English is terrible this way it exhibits what is called one example of why it's so bad this way it exhibits homographic heterophony (laughs) Uh, which it actually talked about this earlier right it's words that are spelled the same but sound different and wikipedia gives us egregious example of words that end in (laughs) o-u-g-h right yeah there's a great um scene from i love lucy where Ricky is trying to read yes. a child's storybook. We will definitely put a link to that in the show notes it's as well. It's hilarious. That is a perfect example of yes. the humor behind that. <laughs> uh-huh. That's exactly it. Um, Wikipedia gives us example of though, tough, through, thought, bow, and cough. <laughs> All ending in the same four letters. <laughs> totally different sounds. But my favorite meaning of heterography <laughs> is using it to refer to spelling words wrong or using the wrong word. From now on, when I get caught in a misspelling or using a word wrong, I'm going to declare that I'm an excerpt in heterography and ask them what their credentials are. Oh, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing. Absolutely. That's a lot of fun. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot. 
Well, thank you listeners again for joining us on your new favorite word. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And we'd love any feedback you might have, including any interesting word discoveries you've made. What's your new favorite word? We're in the process of making a Facebook page and would love to know what other podcast platforms you might be interested in subscribing to our podcast on. Thank you.